Jim, that's probably my most favorite announcements that you've ever given. Feel free to read that section from Mark anytime you'd like. So practical. Anybody got a spare shim? This is floating here. Practical jokes are fun, aren't they? When, I mean, when you do them, <laughs> not when they're done to you. My, uh, one of my favorite practical jokes that I've ever done to someone, I, my, Kathy and I had just gotten married, and, uh, you know, when you're, when you're just married and broke, you do all these odd jobs to try to make ends meet. And so I was working for this painter named Jack, and we were going out to paint some farm out on some horse farm out in Aubrey. And I was driving my own car, told him I'd meet him there. And so there were several cars actually pulling in. And we got up to this gate to go paint this house. And the gate opens. I guess Jack had the code or something. So the gate opens. And we drive in. And immediately, like two or three huge, loud, snarling, barking Doberman pinchers surround our cars and just all, all around the cars just and we're just going real slowly up all the way to the house thinking who's going to be the first one to get out of these cars well i i guess it, it was a blend of naivete and experience but my dad uh, at that time had a doberman so i was pretty well familiar with dobermans and so i got out of the car and the dogs run up to me and i just went Oh, he's a good boy, he's a good boy. And they just, they just all happy all of a sudden. So I'm, I'm petting them. But Jack hadn't gotten out of his painting van yet. So I snuck beside the van and beside his door. He couldn't see me. And as soon as he opened the door, I lunged in, grabbed his knee with both hands and went... Bah, 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 bah. He turned as white as the clothes he was wearing. And that's the last day I worked for Jack. <laughs> so anyway, Jack, I thought you'd get a good laugh out of that. Practical jokes are great. And this week, uh, with April Fool's, you know, I don't know if, if you read a news outlet that gets into this, but if you're not ready for that, you can read some news that can sort of surprise you. Like I was reading one uh, news about Israel that said um, some council had just voted that those who enter up on the Temple Mount, that the big wooden bridge that takes you up there for non-Muslims, the rest of us have to go up through this big wooden bridge to enter on the, uh, the Western Wall side. That bridge is going to be dismantled. We're going to enter through this other gate that's like a big no-no to enter for non-Muslims. And we're going to be exiting through the Golden Gate, which has been bricked closed for 500 years to keep the Jewish Messiah out. I read this and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And as I began to read more and more, I go, oh, it's April Fool. So this is one of those that was on me that wasn't that funny. But uh, through, the, through the years, uh, people have had fun with this in announcements. Like I read about one announcer that announced that the Titanic was sailing again in the English Channel. And there were so many people 
that believed this, they actually went out to like the White Cliffs of Dover and were standing there looking for it. And so many people were there that the ground beneath them cracked. And they got off of it and it actually slid down into the channel. No kidding. Um, another one, uh, Taco Bell. You probably remember this. Taco Bell says that they bought the Liberty Bell. Remember that back in the 90s? Okay, did you believe it at the time? Who said that? Joseph, did you say yes? You believed it. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. All right, it was a big deal. Another one that he got an actor to portray Richard Nixon, like 20 years after Nixon left office, saying, I'm going to run again for, you know, president. And he said something like, I didn't do anything wrong and I won't do it again. <laughs> People believed it. People believed it. But the, best, but the best April Fool's joke, the best in a worst way, and I'm not suggesting that any of you husbands do this, especially because your wife's about to hear about it and she, she will be aware of it. But this one husband did this, and it's terrible. But I'll tell you what it was anyway. They lived, they lived up north to where April, it's still you know really cold outside, and uh, it was early morning, and his wife had not yet awakened, and he snuck outside wearing nothing but his underwear until he couldn't stand it any longer. He was freezing cold, just in his underwear. Then he sneaks back in bed and lays real still. That was not a good way to start April. Well, I grew up in San Antonio, and if you've ever driven to San Antonio from up north down I-35, you have passed the Snake Farm. It used to be called the Snake Farm. Now they've expanded it. They have new ownership, and it's now like the Snake Farm Zoo or something. But it's like a legitimate great place to go and take people. But back when I went... Uh, was probably in the late 70s or something when, when I went as a boy. And it was, uh, it was a little, I don't know, it, it sort of came across as a little shady place to go. But you could go and check out all these snakes and stuff that you couldn't see otherwise. And as a boy, of course, this was just fascinating. In addition to snakes, they had this gorilla in this cage in the corner. Now, gorillas, don't, you just don't trust gorillas. And they, gave, they had these peanuts. You could put in a dime or whatever it was and get a cup full of peanuts and give it to the gorilla. And the gorilla was trained to where as soon as he heard the, the knob turning, you know, on the thing to, that the food was coming out, he, he knows that sound means I'm about to get fed. And so he's in the corner and he just kind of shuffles over to the edge of the, of the, of the cage and, and puts his hand out like this. <laughs> He, he knows the drill. And so his hand is there, and so I, I, I put a peanut in his hand, one at a time. And he kind of takes it and puts it into his mouth. The hand goes back. Next one puts it to his mouth, hand goes back. I mean, he's just, this isn't a very excited animal. And so until I got to the end and I was out, and his hand is back, and, he, and he's not looking at me. As soon as he, he eats, his, his head kind of goes back like this. It's just like, come on, the next, next peanut. 
And so I didn't have anything. So I kind of looked around and I found this little balled up piece of paper. I thought, well, let's give him that. And so I take that and I put it in his hand. And he brings it up to his lips and he looks at it. And then he looks at me. And I kid you not, that gorilla lunged. I felt like Harry felt. If you have never seen a seven-year-old boy fly, I went from this side of the room to that side of the room without ever touching the ground, ran, ran headfirst into a man that I think I hurt him terribly. But anyway, I've never forgotten that, and Harry will probably never forget that either. But I thought about that gorilla, not just because that was funny to everyone who was there except me. I thought about that because that gorilla is often like us and God. We hear the click, click, click of the way that God has always provided, and it becomes so second nature to just kind of shuffle over to God, and God puts it in our hand, and we stick it to our mouth, and it's just back and forth until... God sticks something in our hand that we think, this isn't what you're supposed to give. And next thing God knows, we're flying across the room at him, telling him that this is wrong. Jill Caratini wrote these words. She says, whether an atheist denying the existence of God or a Christian overlooking the blessing of God, the contradiction is as obvious as it is rampant among us. To overlook the good in our lives is to state that there is no one to thank. So let's look together at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. I want to read you something that our president 160 years ago wrote. No, I don't mean President Biden. I mean President Abraham Lincoln our president, who was the president 160 years ago. Lincoln wrote these words, and it's rather lengthy, but, but imagine a president of the United States sharing this with the citizens. Lincoln said, It's the duty of nations as well as of men to own their, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown, but we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. It has seemed to me fit and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. 
I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens. October 3rd, 1863. As we said last week, the holidays, or holy days, uh, this was the original intention of Thanksgiving. The intention of the holidays that we've looked at here in Leviticus 23, remember last time around, we looked at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and today we're looking at the holiday that comes immediately after, or, or even we should say in the middle of, what we've just read last time. Leviticus 23, look down at verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So we've got to understand this in context of what we saw last time. The first month of the year, we saw back up in verse 5, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So their year started with the Passover, with this reminder of how they as a nation began. They began by being redeemed from Egypt. And then immediately after... Verse 6, on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you'd have Passover on one day, then immediately after, for a whole week, you would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then we're told that uh, on the day after the Sabbath, which verse 11 says, you observe the, the uh, Feast of First Fruits. And that's important because... The Passover, it doesn't say that he, you do Passover on like, uh, you know, a Sabbath or on a Monday or a Wednesday. It says you do it on the 14th day of the month, which could be any day. Every year it'll be a different day, but it's always on the 14th. And then, of course, the next day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's why in verse 11 it says, now on the day after the Sabbath meaning of that same week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, wherever the Sabbath falls during that week, it could be any time. It could be at the beginning, it could be toward the end, but at some point during that seven days, Saturday, the Sabbath is going to happen, and the day after that, Sunday, is when they would do this Feast of First Fruits. And if you brought your, feet, your uh, first sheaf, it says there to bring these sheaves. A sheaf is a bundle of barley stalks that they would bundle together and bring, and they did it, and they waved it before the Lord, and what this meant was that you acknowledged that your harvest comes from God. You were giving thanks for what God has done. Let's keep reading, verse 12. Now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one-year-old without defect, for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its drink offering, a fourth of a hen of wine. So you, you, brought, you brought offerings from the flock, from the field, from the vineyard, all to come to God 
And you did it on a Sunday. You did it on a Sunday. Uh, there was a soldier I read about in uh, World War II. He had just left the Army Hospital, and uh, he wrote to General Patton, actually, thanking him for the excellent care that he had received while the soldier was there in the hospital. And Patton actually wrote him back and said, uh, then in 35 years he, that he'd been leading or he'd been involved with uh, in command of troops, that no one had ever written him back to thank him uh, for taking care of his troops. First letter in 35 years. Uh, you're probably familiar with the fact that Santa every Christmas also gets jilted. Many letters go in. In fact, the Chicago Daily News said thousands of letters come to Santa every year. But this particular year, in the months before Christmas, but, in the, but after Christmas, only one card thanking Santa for what he'd received. I'm sure that was your child or grandchild that did that. And uh, even Jesus got stiffed. You remember he healed ten lepers, only one came back to thank you. And Jesus wasn't surprised about the one. His surprise was, where are the other nine? Were not all ten healed? Yes. So there is this, this sense that we go gorilla on God, that we get so familiar with his blessings. You know, it's just hand out, back to mouth. That we, it's boring until God gives us something that we're not expecting. And then all of a sudden we come wide awake and... We wonder why God is not doing what God is supposed to do. God's grace becomes an entitlement to us rather than something that gives us pause for humility and pause for thankfulness. This feast of, uh, of the first fruits wasn't, was designed to do that. You would take the first from your flock, from your field, from your vineyard. You would bring it and you would give it to God. And the first fruits, meaning this is like, you've been waiting a long time for this harvest. Finally, there's something, and you take it, and you give it to God. You don't eat it until God eats, as it were. You give it to him. Wow. There's a tribe in West Africa that has kind of a, a funny way of saying thank you, funny to us. The, the phrase is literally, my head is in the dirt. So next time a server at a restaurant comes and brings you your meal, Instead of saying thank you, say, my head is in the dirt. <laughs> and see, see how that goes. But what they mean is uh, when the tribe wants to say thank you, they literally put their forehead down on the ground. And when they want to acknowledge gratitude with humility toward another family, the person will go and sit in front of the hut of the person that they want to say thank you to. They just sit on the ground in front of the hut like all day long. Imagine that. Every time you walk out of your house to get the mail, there's this guy sitting there. You still Because he's expressing thankfulness. And he does it on the ground. I sit on the ground before you. True gratitude comes from one who is humble. And if you've got trouble being thankful to what God has given you, then you and I also have trouble being humble. Verse 14 until this same day, we're still talking about Sunday, 
Until this same day, until you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. In other words, God goes first. The first fruits are given to God, and God gets to have it first. It reminds me of what Life's Little Instruction Book, Volume 2, says, quote, When you carve the Thanksgiving turkey, give the first piece to the person who prepared it. So this is not just true for mom. This is true for God. The first fruits. We do the same thing, don't we? Or we, we should. We take off the top. How, however you get your earnings, whether it just shows up in your bank or whether someone hands you cash or whether somebody gives you a check, however you, you make your means each month or each week, we take off the top and give to God. We don't give to God the leftovers because honestly, most of us have more month left over at the end of a paycheck than we have paycheck left over at the end of the month. And if we give God what's left, God doesn't get much, does he? Because somehow everything else tends to crowd it out. It was the same way with them. They gave God the first. They scraped the cream off the top and gave God the very best. And this was not just an act of worship. This was also an act of faith. Because what it meant is, God, by me giving you the very first of what I need, I am also expecting you that there will be more to come. The first fruits means that there's more to come. It's the first, but it's not the last. It means there's more to come. So we can pull a principle from this text that is timeless. It's true of us, and it's also true for them. They applied it their way. We can apply it our way. And here's the principle. It's kind of long, so I'll read it a couple times. But here it is. Thanking our Lord with the first of our blessings is an act of faith. Thanking our Lord with the first of our blessings is an act of faith in his promise to provide. Thanking the Lord with the first of our blessings is an act of faith in his promise to provide. We give him off the top out of worship, but also out of expectation that he is going to provide. Now, keep your place here in Leviticus, if you would. And let's be good Baptists and look at a few other verses really fast. When I grew up a little Baptist boy, we had what they called Bible drills. Remember Bible drills? You would start like this. And someone would say a verse. Boom! And whoever could get there first somehow was more spiritual. I'm not sure why that worked, but it was fun. But we don't have to race there, but let's do turn. Keep your place in Leviticus and turn to two places. Deuteronomy 6 and Nehemiah 9. Deuteronomy 6, Nehemiah 9. Deuteronomy means second law, deuto-namas, second law. And it doesn't mean an additional law. It means the second giving of the, of the law, a reiteration of the law. And why did that have to happen? Deuteronomy 6, why did that have to happen? It had to happen because between the books of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, is what book? Numbers. You know why Numbers is called Numbers? Because they did censuses. Do you say censuses or sensi? I don't know. Censuses. They did two censuses. One at the beginning, and they counted everybody. But then there was that big event where like the whole generation dies. 
ah, that census is worthless. So now we've got to do another census. So you've got a brand new generation at the end of the book of Numbers that needs a fresh retelling of the law. And that's what Deuteronomy is for. It gives this fresh retelling of the law to the generation that's about to go into the land. Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things, all good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. The repeated emphasis here, which you did not build, emphasizes that God is giving this to them. In other words, God is saying to them, look, you're about to go into the land. You're going to face these people that you couldn't win against without my help. I'm going to help you win. Not only that, you get to live in a model home. You, you walk in and everything's ready. There's a fire burning in the fireplace. Supper's done on the stove. All you've got to do is just sit down and eat. He said, this is my blessing to you. But when this happens, and it will happen, Watch yourself. Notice verse 12, at least in my translation, says, then watch yourself. The word right prior to that, at the end of verse 11, is the word satisfied. Satisfied. And you eat and are satisfied. Satisfaction is a great thing, isn't it? We love to be satisfied. The problem with satisfaction is right is what happens right after that? Then watch yourself. Because satisfaction brings complacency spiritually. This is why God puts paper in our hand when we hold it out for a peanut. Because that shakes us out of our complacency. Wait a minute, God. I've been, I was ready for the next peanut. God says, well, you're going to chew on paper for just a little bit until you realize this isn't an entitlement. This is my grace given to you. This is my gift to you. Not just salvation, but the food in your mouth is grace. And gratitude is how we express that to God. Now, look at Nehemiah chapter 9. We know our Bible history. Deuteronomy is right after they are about to enter the land. And then they did it wrong. Once they got into the land, they were taken out of the land. Nehemiah is them having just come back into the land again. And in Nehemiah 9, look down at verse 25. Nehemiah 9, 25. This is the great prayer of dedication, and in so doing, they are recounting their history. 
Verse 25, they say this, They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and reveled in your great goodness, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. Nehemiah is pointing directly back to Deuteronomy 6, saying this is exactly what God said would happen. And it did happen. And Nehemiah is saying, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. So, back to Leviticus, if you would. They were abundantly blessed, and you and I are abundantly blessed. Our garbage disposals eat better than most of the world's population. Prosperity and blessings are ours in abundance. Just here in the United States, we are rich compared to much of the world. And if you're not sure about that, go look at some other parts of the world. I mean, really go look at them, not just on the newsreels. And you will see we are rich. We have to watch ourselves. I was working one day, uh, probably one weekend, uh, hammering away on my laptop, and Kathy, the uh, dutiful, helpful wife that she is, came and saw me working away, and she said, hey, would you do me a favor? I said, yeah. She says, why don't you read a book today instead of work? I thought, well, it's actually a great idea. So I closed the work, and I went over to the list of the shelf of books, try to find something that I had not read before. And my finger landed on Anne Vascomp's great book, uh, what's it called, 1,000 Gifts. I thumbed through it a lot, never really read it, thought, all right, this looks good, I'm going to read this. And at first it was hard to read. I mean, has anyone ever read that book? You've read that book, haven't you? Did you? Okay. It's actually a great book, but at first it was very hard to read because Anne, she, she, you may not know, but she's like a farmer's wife and she writes this book about 1,000 gifts to just focusing on the great gratitude that she had in her life for God's daily blessings. And she would write a list of like 1,000 things. That was her commitment to find 1,000 things that she was going to be thankful for. And so she writes a book about this process that she went through. And it was hard to, for me to read because when I read a book, my goal is to finish the book. It's rarely to, like, apply the book. It, my goal is just done. I like to read it fast to get the big idea to walk away with one or two things. This book wouldn't let me do that. The writing was short, choppy sentences. That book has more periods per square inch than I think. I mean, it's like some, some sentences were one word. It's like driving on a highway and having to go over speed bumps all the time. It just it forced you to slow down and read, and it worked. And the, the goal basically was to make you slow down and notice things to be thankful for. And I like one thing that Anne wrote in particular, a lot of things, but one thing. Here's one quote she said, Every breath is a battle between grudgery and gratitude, and we must keep thanks on our lips so that we can sip from the holy grail of joy. And she's right. There is no joy without gratitude. 
you don't have great gratitude in your life, you don't have joy in your life. Not at all. We default to grumbling. We default to the gorilla mindset of, God, what are you going to give me next? Because giving me is what you do. Anne did this by writing a list of these thousand things. And she challenged us, the readers, to do the same thing. So I didn't write a thousand down. I just started with ten things. And uh, here are some of the things I jotted down. My wife, Kathy, my daughters, Sarah and Kate, my son-in-law, Luke, and I could add to that here in a couple months, my new grandson coming, Caleb. The dogs in my life that show love. Music that inspires worship. The changing seasons. Silence of early mornings. Trips to the Bible lands. Fingers to type with. Meetings that start on time. The strength to go on God gives me when I don't think I can. Receiving clear direction. These are some of the things that I jotted down. And one of the things that Anne did, she didn't write a thousand things down, but her goal was to write a thousand things down. She didn't write a thousand things down all in one day. But this was a project of weeks and maybe months. The thought being, if your goal is to look for something to be grateful for, then you have a mindset to be looking for it. I don't know about you, but I tend to look, I tend to find what I'm looking for in every aspect of life. You're going to find what you're looking for. A kid goes off to college. If they want to find people to drink with, you can find it. Absolutely. If you want to find Christian fellowship, you can find it. You will find what you're looking for. Um, we are in the market right now to buy a car. And it's been 12 years since we bought a car. And I wouldn't wish this on anybody. When's the last time you bought a car? Oh, it's such a grueling, grueling. Like yesterday, we were, I won't get too long into this, but yesterday we went to the a dealership. And the first thing this guy did is said, come on inside and let's fill out some paperwork. I said, I don't need to fill out paperwork to look at a car. I need you to get the keys. I know, I know, I'm, I can get snarky really fast. I was not making a list of my 1,000 gifts in that moment. But it's hard. But the point is, there's like two or three, we sort of narrowed it down to two or three things, two or three cars, and now I see those cars everywhere on the road. Literally, I thought, where did all these cars come from? Because now I'm noticing them. They were there all along. They were there all along. Our gratitude is like that. If we're not looking for it, we're not going to see it. If we're looking for it, we'll see it everywhere. Because it's there all along. But it's the mindset. We have this gorilla mindset with God as opposed to, my face is in the dirt, God. Thank you for what you've done in my life. You have put me in a model home life. You've given me a model home salvation. It's all been done for me. All I got to do is show up and enjoy it. But watch yourself. Lest showing up and enjoying it, you forget God. And we can do it, which is exactly why we're warned about that in the scriptures. 
Moses' warning is essential. Unless we watch ourselves, we will allow our abundantly blessed, busy lives to drift away from our devotion to Jesus Christ. We will adore our families, our homes, our jobs, our ministries, our vacations, even our salvation, all God's great blessings to us. And in a weird, sad, twisted irony, we will begin to worship the blessings instead of the God who has blessed us. It's really easy to do, and it's subtle because it's a, it's a slow shift. It's a slow shift. So we're still in Leviticus 23. Look back at verse 11. We read this, but just want to point it out again. Verse 11, it's, this act of waving the sheaf was to be done before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. What day is the Sabbath? Saturday. Always has been, always will be. Saturday. The day after the Sabbath is what? Today. It's Sunday. Then verse 12, on the day, same day, when you wave the sheaf, on Sunday, he gives more instruction. Then verse 14, it says, until this same day, Sunday, until you have brought in the offerings of God. Three times in this context, God says, on Sunday, on Sunday, on Sunday, I want you to do this. The Feast of First Fruits. Why? Well, Leviticus doesn't know why. doesn't tell us why. Until we get to 1 Corinthians. And this will be our last stop in the Bible. So, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Old Testament Feast of First Fruits connects with Jesus Christ. In fact, all of the feasts connect to Jesus Christ. All are fulfilled in Jesus Christ in some way. We know the Passover because Jesus is the Passover lamb. The um, Feast of Unleavened Bread, obviously Jesus' life was unleavened, but we also connect that with living an unleavened life before God. And the other feasts do as well. We won't get into each one. But first fruits is mentioned here, and the Apostle Paul directly connects it to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, let's start in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Paul writes, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So Paul tells us here, because of Adam's choice to sin, all people were made sinners. But because of Christ's righteous death on the cross, all people also have the choice to have their sins forgiven. One was not op a choice. We all were sinners in Adam. But now as uh, those who are fallen, we all do have the choice whether or not we want those sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. And we're told that Christ is the first fruits. 
So on the same day, on Sunday, that the sheaf or the first fruits was offered, that same day, Christ, our first fruits, rose from the dead. Christ's resurrection, Paul tells us, that Christ is the first fruits from the dead, the first of those who are asleep. Christ has been raised. And we know from Leviticus that first fruits means there's first, but then there's more coming. The first fruits mean that there's a greater harvest than just the first fruits. There's more coming. And that's why Paul says um, in verse 23, but each in his order, Christ the first fruits. After that, here's the more coming, those who are Christ's at his coming. That's us. That Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits showing there is more to come. And it shows that our resurrection is just as certain as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Great promise, great hope. And this fits wonderful with uh, what Leviticus has taught us. Remember the old hymn? Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontime and the dewy eve. Interesting lyrics. Waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in... You don't know it? Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. That's great. What in the world does it mean? We've sung that all our lives. Bringing in the sheaves. I don't know what this means. We're going to sing it. And the melody is so cheesy, but the lyrics are magnificent because they focus on our hope that Christ is our first fruits. He is the first, as it were, that has been raised from the dead. We will also come rejoicing. Our joy is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's our second and final principle. Jesus' resurrection previews the hope all believers should live for. Jesus' resurrection previews the hope that all believers should live for. It's our hope. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead to thumb his nose at death. I mean, he did thumb his nose at death, but not just to do that. It, was, it showed a couple things, that our sins are forgiven. Romans 4.25 says that. But also, he is the first fruits. that Christ rising from the dead is proof that when he comes, he will raise from the dead those of us who have believed in Christ because he is the first of many more to come. That is hope. In fact, when Paul writes to Titus, he calls it the blessed hope, is the rapture, which is the next event in prophetic history. It's hope. It's hope not like we say, I hope it doesn't rain or I hope the Cowboys go to the Super Bowl. My friend, that is not a biblical hope. <laughs> That is a long shot. That, that is a shot in the dark hope. Biblical hope is I know it's coming. It's like those of you who have already looked at your watch and saying, when is 12 o'clock coming? That is a biblical hope. It is coming. It will be here before you know it. This is a biblical hope. Jesus is coming for us. He promises that he is. 
And our blessed hope is that when he does, we will be changed. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is all about that. If we were to keep reading in 1 Corinthians 15, we would see that we are changed in a moment and we will be like Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful hope. Okay, well, we've got a few minutes. Does anybody have any questions or clarifications on what we've talked about today? Just raise your hand up. Okay, we've got one right over here. Go ahead, we've got a microphone here for you. We want to record this for posterity. When does does it work? Yeah. Okay. What about Moses, Elijah, Daniel, all the rest? Good. Do they? Do they, they, do they have a resurrection? Yes. Absolutely they do. In fact, Daniel is a good one to mention. If you read the very last verse of the book of Daniel, uh, the Lord tells Daniel, go your way, Daniel, and basically die until you rise again to receive your reward. So there is definitely an, an expectation. When um, Jesus was about to raise Lazarus, he asked Martha, Lazarus' sister, uh, do you believe? And she says, yes, I believe you know, that he will rise again in the resurrection. So there was this Old Testament hope of that. So, yes, absolutely. Yay. <laughs> Very good question. Rich, please be kind. Yeah, I will, I will. Um, this was in... The devotion I read this morning, um, actually yesterday's devotion in your uh, scripture reading for the Old Testament, um, it talked about what you read about earlier, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they were to clear out all yeast during that time. And I don't know why I thought of it this morning, but, I mean, there was not supposed to be any yeast in any home in Israel during that time. Okay, if they destroyed the yeast, they were going to need it again after that feast was over to make bread again. Is, are you aware of any provision that was made as to how they got a new yeast start? Just ask that woman sitting to your right. <laughs> It's easy. It's floating in the air, Rich. It, it does it. It takes care of itself. So, but good question. <laughs> okay. Sharon's got her hand up over here. Okay. If uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the feasts and rituals and all the ceremonies, is he also the fulfillment of the Sabbath? Is Jesus the fulfillment of the Sabbath? Um, in a way, I, I want to give a qualified yes, uh, only because I'm not, I don't have a firm yes. But it could be a firm yes, it's just I'm trying to filter through uh, everything in my head. But the book of Hebrews does say that, that Jesus, um, that there is a Sabbath that remains for those who are believers, meaning that we, not that we Christians are bound to obey the Sabbath, and though I know there's a lot of debate on that, but the Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament for us. But it does say there is a Sabbath that remains, and in that context what it means is that we rest from working in order, because there's no need to work for salvation. The work's been done for us. So in that sense, I guess Jesus is the, 
a fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is the, the rest that we are been longing for. So. All right, anybody, other question or clarification? All right, excellent. Well, let's bow together for prayer, and I'm going to begin our prayer by reading a couple of verses from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Indeed, Father God, we are grateful to you. And it's so helpful, once again, to read this text, these texts that remind us not to be gorilla-like before you, but to have our face in the dirt. Not in a sense of humiliation, but definitely in a sense of humility that we would come before you realizing that you've given us a model home life, a model home salvation. Not a perfect life, not a Garden of Eden. We live in a fallen world. And every once in a while, as we chew on the paper that you provide instead of the peanuts, you remind us of what we should be aware of all along, that it's all from your hand. And like our President Lincoln said so long ago, we do want to pause, and whether it's a holiday or whether it is just today, we pause. And we bow our heads in humility, confessing it's all because of you, that we have nothing to commend ourselves before you. We have no life of good deeds that can earn anything except condemnation, because we also have sin. Thank you for Jesus' wonderful gracious death on the cross that paid for our sins and for his resurrection, the first fruits from the dead, that gives us a picture that there's more to come, that our own resurrection is coming. And we eagerly look forward to that day, our blessed hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. As you're leaving, I remind you that the, the travel information that Wayne's got for the next three tours that he's got coming up are over here on the table. And uh, no marathon class next week. Have a blessed Easter. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.